hppodcraft.com. Dr. Herrick told me that, in common with all the enlightened or illuminated brothers, of which prying sect the age breeds so many, he trusted the great lines of nature not in the whole, but in part, as they believed nature was in certain senses not true and a betrayer, and that she was not wholly the benevolent power to endow, as accorded with the prevailing deceived notion of the vulgar. But he wished not to discuss more particularly than thus, as he had drawn up to himself a certain frontier of reticence, and so fell to petting a great black pig, of which he made an unseemly companion, and to talking idly. That is from the opening of Concerning Corinna, a short story by James Branch Cabell. And we're talking about it here on Strange Studies, The Strange Stories. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. We're here at hppodcraft.com and Patreon. We are kicking off a month on fairies and the like, magical, sometimes malevolent creatures that cause mischief in human lives. Speaking of magic, we are joined by a magical guest, Ken Hite. Hey! Hey, welcome back, Ken. How, it's so Thanks. good to have you on. What have you been up to lately, my friend? The big news is that Tour de Lovecraft, The Destinations, Volume 2 of Tour de Lovecraft, and Tour de Lovecraft Details, the extended version of Volume 1, should be on their way to Kickstarter backers, and they are absolutely available on the AtomicOvermindPress.com website, and will eventually be hitting the shelves of fine bookstores everywhere. We are also joined by a reader today, a very wonderful gentleman named Eric Peabody. Eric is the audiomancer behind Viking Guitar Productions. He mix masters music, does audiobooks and podcasts. Folks, if you have audio needs, click that link in the show notes for Viking Guitar Productions. Now, he Ken does. recommended this story for us, and I want to get into why, but first, Chris, I actually wanted to ask you, you, you wanted to do a month about fairies and fae. What made you ponder doing that? We've touched on it a little bit with the people under the hills, those types of things in the in the weird fiction, you know, with the Mackins. The Mackins. All of the Mackins. Uh, even Howard, Robert, Robert E. Howard had, mm-hmm. you know, some stories about that with uh, his picked guys. You know, I just thought, well, let's, there's got to be a lot more out there, and fairies are kind of creepy and cool, and why not? Oh, that's good enough reasoning for me. Yeah, yeah, that's logic. Then you threw this up to Ken. We were making fun of movies, independent films, for using that exact kind of construction in their titles recently. You know, Chasing Amy, that thing that where it sounds like <laughs> it's profound, but it's really not. So when I, you said Concerning Corinna, I was like, is that from 1996 or something? It sounds like it would have been a, a Sandra Bullock romantic comedy, but... It's an early Greta Gerwig piece. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought this was interesting because I never thought of fairies, like most people I don't think as evil creatures. I grew up thinking of them as sort of that Disney Tinkerbell type of pleasant thing. Tinkerbell tries to murder Wendy. Oh, that's a good point. Does that happen? <laughs> and then the audience cheers. Like if you cheer louder, the murder will happen. Isn't that how it works? In the... That was in the Blumhouse, Peter Pan. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> this audience doesn't seem like they want murder today. Yeah, this, this audience seems pretty civilian. <laughs> I know in high school we read La Belle Dame Sans Merci by Keats, and that's when I became aware of the vampire-ish sort of fairy. Mm-hmm. It's when I was around 21 or 22 that the book Changeling for White Wolf came out. Oh, wow. For the world of darkness, right? It had fairies yeah. and that kind of thing. And that was probably, for me, the first time that I really thought, whoa, wait, there's a lot more to this than, you know, it being a love story that went bad. These seem like these are these folkloric monsters that are serious enough to be treated by World of Darkness. That was not, that was a surprise to me that that was their next 
title. Yeah, I, for me, I think Mackin was probably my door into fairies are messed up. I mean, like everyone, I grew up on the Victorian uh, Andrew Lang's Green Book of Fairies and all those, that whole mm. uh, series. I read fairy tales, which are not technically fairy tales. That's a different term, but, you know, sometimes they have fairies in them. Then I hit Mackin and it's like, I feel like Mackin has got the other end of this continuum, right? That he's yeah. got the most material, scariest, creepiest, debased kind of fairy. Mm, and yeah. then once you look into it, the original stories, the reason that they're called the good folk is that if you don't call them the good folk, they will come over and poison your cows and carry off your kids. You get the sense that fairies are actually running like a magical protection racket. <laughs> and, you know, the older legends that, I mean, and they're not even that much older. These were legends that were gathered up in the 1800s about how bad the fairies will treat you. It all folds into things like Robert Kirk talking about being kidnapped by the fairies and carried off to this other land. And he comes back and he talks about how dangerous and, and strange they are. And you get all that folkloric level underneath the sort of Victorian domestication of fairies that even Shakespeare has begun because not coincidentally... Mm -hmm. Shakespeare's time is the first time you have a large urban audience and they're out of the natural world and they have been estranged from the natural world, alienated from it. They don't understand it. There's no need to be afraid that someone's cows are going to be blighted. You live in London. Cows are brought in and murdered at Smithfield Market for you. You don't have to worry about the cows sure. out in the woods. And so you can concentrate on the fact that, so you say that they will take you into a into a hollow place and feeds you magical food and have sex with you. This intrigues me. Tell me more. And that's where you get oh, your sort of sexy wild fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream, right? Is that they sort of eroticized the fairies after being scared of them. And then the Victorians are like, well, we're not eroticizing them either. Thank you very much. And they <laughs> domesticate them completely down into the sort of fairies that you're talking about that we all began with. I think it happens with everything. I mean, we've seen it happen with Cthulhu in our own lifetimes. We've got proper Cthulhu. Then it sort of turns into the weird hentai Cthulhu. And now it's plush Cthulhu and fun cartoon Cthulhu. And he's yeah. a meme. Mm -hmm. And no one cares about him. Except, of course, they still do because that's not how culture works. But yeah. culture very much builds these layers of domestication onto anything. Count Chocula, it's the same thing. Count Chocula <laughs> is Andrew Lang's Book of Fairies. I have a big box of Count Chocula in the other room right now, actually. As well you, you should. My first experience of like a creepy fairy story was Rip Van Winkle. I don't know if you remember, in the late 70s, they did a claymation uh, animation of Rip Van Winkle where he no. you know goes into the fairy realm and then he wakes up old yeah which is the story yeah. and that's like that's an American folktale it might have come over from Dutch probably yeah Dutch oh! obviously people like Catherine Briggs or whoever have, have taken that whole legendarium for all kind of rides that we don't have time to, to do it on but there's no bottom to that well you can read fairy lore and fairy legends and, and all of that forever and never get to the bottom of it um, a month will be a great start that's what I want to say Branch Cabell was born to a wealthy family in Virginia in 1879 he went to college at the age of 15 as an undergrad he started a relationship with a professor that was considered too intimate and he was dismissed. However, he later returned and got his degree. He worked at the Richmond News starting in 1901 on the staff. Also that year, he got his first story accepted for publication. And also he was a suspect for murder. That was a good way to make me not worry about whatever that relationship was with the professor. Uh -huh, <laughs> what's that about? And then, then the next... <laughs> the next line of the bio, he's suspected of the murder of John Scott, a wealthy <laughs> Richmonder. It was rumored that Scott was involved romantically with Cabell's mother. So that was possibly the motive, which was enough for me. I think he did it. Yeah, <laughs> right. He was acquitted. That's because in Virginia in 1901, if you were messing with a man's mother, you deserve death. Mother. There is no other like mother. 
to treat it right. His most famous book is Jurgen, A Comedy of Justice, which came out in 1919. He got in some trouble for breaking some obscenity laws. It's mm-hmm. a, the story of a guy who travels to fantastic lands and seduces women, including the devil's wife. So what, is it just there was too much double entendre in this uh, story, or what was it, obs- it, what was it obscene It got down it? to the single entendres at, at times, but it was <laughs> a lot of double entendre. It was just very, very sexy. I don't know if you guys remember, but there used to be a time when uh, Tipper Gore and Jerry uh, Falwell reached yep. across the aisle. We had true bipartisanship in this country <laughs> and they wanted to stop bad, lascivious metal and rap from being played. Uh-huh. And what happened, of course, was that you'd get that PMRC sticker on your album and mm-hmm. that would be guaranteed another million sales. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Like, These are the ones that uh, Tipper and Jerry don't like. They must be the good stuff. This must yeah. have the actual awesomeness. But that was sort of the thing that happened in 1919. Even in 1919, there was a large urban audience, people who thought of themselves as sophisticates, and they said, oh, if it's been put on trial for censorship, it must be the, the bee's knees. Let's read it. And that <laughs> the same thing happened with D.H. Lawrence. It happened with James Joyce. And sure. sure enough, it happened with James Ranch Cabell. And by the way, the one thing that got lost in that whole conversation, how did the devil get married? That was what I was also <laughs> curious about. He seduced the devil's wife. And would the devil care? I would assume he'd have an open marriage. So, Well, I think the devil has an open marriage for the devil, but not for his wife. I feel like the devil is very selfish. Yeah. Well, it's solved. So Cabell uh, had a lot of fans, a lot of famous fans. Mark Twain, Sinclair Lewis, and others thought he was the bee's knees. But nowadays, he's kind of forgotten. Yeah, and I read in just the Wikipedia entry that uh, somebody had said he continued to write fantasy despite the onset of World War II, and that was sort of what doomed his career, which I guess really just means he continued to publish fantasy, because as far as I know, Tolkien was writing fantasy all through yeah, I mean, World War II. What doomed his career was not the subject matter so much. It was Well, I mean, he also played a giant role in dooming his own career, which we can get into if we want. But basically, once you read this story or if you read any of his novels, tastes just radically changed. He writes in a elevated, arch, ironic, witty, multi-layered style, and he does it forever. Once Hemingway becomes the ne plus ultra of American fiction, or even Fitzgerald, it's like two different languages almost. Modernism swings its wrecking ball through literature just like it does architecture and everything else. For a long old time, anything ornamented was seen as fussy and old-fashioned. And if you remember, the way that he got his rep in the first place was by being dangerous and avant-garde. There you Mm -hmm. go. Poor old Cabell, he died, but pretty late in 1958 at the age of 79. This story concerning Corinna was first published in 1916 in the collection The Certain Hour. But let's get into the story. After the that writing we heard at the top, we have a poem, and that poem was written by this guy, Dr. Herrick. Speaking of Lord of the Rings, the poem opens uh, talking about the ring of Gyges, Eges, I'm not Gyges. exactly sure, Gyges, Gyges, which in Greek myth is a ring that turns the wearer invisible. A Gyges ring they bear about them still to be and not, seen when and where they will. They tread on clouds, and though they sometimes fall, they fall like dew and make no noise at all. So silently they one to the other come as colors steal into the pear or plum, and air-like leave no pression to be seen, where they met or parting place has been. Robert Herrick, my lovers how they come and part. We got that opening, I'm not sure who wrote that opening about Herrick, but then we have an actual poem from Herrick. I I think uh, that opening is Cabell giving a sort of a faux scholarly introduction because the conceit of the collection, A Certain Hour, is that this is all stories of 
poets who are met with a crisis, a, a crisis in this case of romance. The, the sort of introduction is sort of a faux scholarly, like a quote from an annal type thing. I spent some time trying to see if this was from an actual biography of Herrick. It doesn't seem to be. It seems to be exclusive to Cabell. And he does this same sort of thing at the beginning of each of the stories in a certain hour. So I suspect uh. this is Cabell's sort of, if you can't find the epigraph that says what you want, write your own epigraph uh, <laughs> school of, th of thought here. The theory about Dr. Herrick is that he is insane. And we've got these two guys that are investigating Herrick's strange case. We have Sir Thomas Brown, who does think that Herrick is the nut job, but then we have Philip Borsdale, who thinks Herrick might actually not be insane. Sir Thomas Brown, I should point out, is a real historical character. He is the author of The Urn Burial, among other great works of English hmm. eccentricity. He was also a poet. He was sort of an early Baconian scientist. He has a, a book called uh, Vulgar Errors, I believe, that which he goes around and finds all the folklore and weird beliefs that he can, and he sort of very patiently explains that they're not true, they're made up. This is, you know, not real. Sir Thomas Brown is a, a famous figure of the 17th century. Uh, Philip Borsdale is part of the extended James Branch Cabell universe. So this is like if that was Randolph Carter, you'd be like, okay, I get it. Philip Borsdale shows up in other Cabell books. So uh, Philip okay. Borsdale is, is a guest star here from the ongoing Cabell cont continuity. So Sir Thomas is sort of like a debunking knight a little bit. So he's a interested bit, in that yeah. stuff, but then he explains why it's not real. Now, Dr. Herrick is a clergyman for the Church of England. He has a few friends uh, in his life, but not many. He's never had any love interest or relationships that anybody knows of. He lives in Devon and the year is 1674. People are weirded out by the fact that he has this black pig that he hangs out with all the time. It's very ugly. He was seldom seen without the pig, and he often talked to it. Now, Dr. Herrick had attracted a bit of a, a fan following. People came from all around Devon to see this writer. So he's a famous poet. Uh, what's the deal with the pig? The pig is real. The actual historical Robert Herrick, who wrote like 1,100 poems in his life. The one that I think we all know is the one that begins, Gather ye rosebuds while ye may, mm -hmm. which is a poem that says, eh, forget about it, just get after it while you got it. And that was sort of Herrick's attitude. He did, in fact, uh, have a job as a clergyman in Devon. He did, in fact, have a black pig that followed him around that he taught to drink from a tankard, according to biographies of Herrick. <laughs> um, uh, he seems to be sort of a, a big party dude looking fella, although, as you point out, there is no existing historical record of him having uh, any girlfriends, which, you know, on the one hand, clergyman, well-behaved. Yeah. On the mm -hmm. other hand, Writes poems about getting it on with ladies. Very confusing to everyone. And, of mm -hmm. course, weird pet pig. <laughs> I guess I thought maybe it was a, a familiar or something well, early I think on. That, I think we're, in a, we're sort of in Tim Powers country where Cabell is, uh, speaking of people who are fans of Cabell, Tim Powers, a giant fan of Cabell, where Cabell is taking the actual historical facts of Robert Herrick's life, eccentric, wrote about fairies, uh, didn't have a girlfriend, hung out with a pig, and said, what would explain this? Speaking <laughs> poet to poet, why would you be like that? And the, the explanation is, of course, what the book is, uh, the story is about. Now, Sir Thomas is an ardent amateur of the curious, and Philip Borsdale uh, used to work for Dr. Herrick, and uh, he is called 
on Sir Thomas for assistance in his case. Now, Sir Thomas arrives at Dr. Herrick's and Philip is reading over Herrick's manuscripts. It seems that Herrick was writing about some very strange stuff. Now, Philip explains that Dr. Herrick has disappeared. And this doesn't surprise Sir Thomas because the last time he saw Herrick, he was acting pretty nutty. During a sermon, he threw a manuscript at the congregation and yelled at them for not paying enough attention which sounds like maybe that was something that actually happened. I believe that that is an actual story, that Herrick uh, had sort of an attitude about him. <laughs> and of course, there's this whole strange thing with the pig as well. Not only is he talking to it, it seems that he was treating it as if it were a person, and that obviously teaching it how to drink out of a, of a tankard. So unusual behavior with a pig. Now, Phil yep. explains that the pig was called <laughs> Corinna, named after uh, the love interest that he writes about in his fiction, and the pig has also disappeared. Yeah, that was a funny... Uh, no, the pig's also gone. <laughs> Doubtless it's unrelated, I think they say. Yes. <laughs> He's gone off on his own thing. Uh, it says here, apparently Dr. Herrick was quietly writing in the very study they're in at 11 o'clock the night before when old Prudence Baldwin, the housekeeper, last saw him. Afterward, Dr. Herrick appears to have diverted himself by taking away the mats and chalking geometrical designs upon the floor. So he was doing some kind of dreams in the witch house kind of stuff, yeah, maybe. Magic. Yeah, he was doing sorcery. He also left the clothes he was wearing in a rather strangely constructed heap among them, by the way. I found this flattened bullet. Yeah, there's a bullet in his scattered uh, clothes that he's gotten rid of, flattened and corroded. The, that puzzled me. What, if he's drawing all sorts of symbols, he went through some magical gateway, I was assuming. Why is there a bullet in his clothing? If this was a conventional horror story, it would be that he was you know, shot long ago and the bullet had been in him. Mm. Since we know that Herrick went through the English Civil War, maybe the assumption is that he was shot at some point and that the bullet had just stayed in him as a result. Uh, I, uh, I guess. Okay. I bet that's what it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now that makes sense. So he actually didn't travel through a gateway. He materially disappeared. And so something that was in his body fell down. That... Mm tells you something that gives you information now. I didn't get it, but I get I get that's yeah. cool. So Borsdale is about to wax on about the mystery when Sir Thomas says, I detect a vista of curious perils such as infinitely outshines verbal brilliancy. You need my aid in some insane attempt. Which that I got into the story then because he's like, you had me at curious perils. Let's do this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sir Thomas is up for some occult action. Borsdale tells Sir Thomas that he's been asked to help by the missing man himself. Of course, I did not know what he meant to try. In short, Dr. Herrick left this manuscript as well as certain instructions for me. The last are, well, unusual. Borsdale says that Dr. Herrick is in his 80s and he lived in the area for 50 years. It was all of 50 years ago that Dr. Herrick first appeared in print with his description of the king and queen of the fairies. The thought seems always to have haunted him. You wonder, was he interested in it first and then he found the evidence or did he write about it because of something that happened? It says, he had found in every country in the world traditions of a race who were human, yet more than human. That is the most exact fashion in which I can express his beginnings. On every side, he found the notion of a race who can impinge on mortal life and partake of it, but always without exercising the last reach of their endowments. Oh, the tradition exists everywhere, whether you call these occasional interlopers fauns, fairies, gnomes, ondines, incubi, or demons. They could, according to these fables, temporarily restrict themselves into our life, 
become apparent to our human senses in the fashion of a cube which can obtrude only one of its six surfaces into a plane. You follow me, of course, sir. To the triangles and circles and hexagons, this cube would seem to be an ordinary square. Conceiving such a race to exist, we might talk with them, might jostle them in the streets, might even intermarry with them, sir, and always see in them only human beings, and solely because of our senses' limitations. The idea of us only seeing the square side of a cube was cool, given that we were just talking about that sort of thing with Robert Aikman last month. Limited perception and how we're running up against the failures of our own senses to truly show us everything that's in the natural world. It was that sentence, by the way, that caught my attention, or that sentiment that caught my attention, that this sort of notion, fairies as hypergeometrical beings, that it would be in Kabul of all places, I was, yeah. I was immediately drawn to that. And then I read the whole story and the story was terrific. People suggested a connection possibly to the earlier fantasy Flatland by uh, Edwin Abbott, which came out in the 1880s. I have no idea whether or not Cabell read Flatland or came up with the notion of these tesseract fairies on his own. Who can say? Abbott very carefully makes Flatland only a, a satire on conventional Victorian morality. He does not make it a secret universe that you can travel to. This connection between this concept of uh, non-Euclidean or hypergeometric entities, very quotidian, actual historical Devonshire in the 1670s, this, I think, is, I don't want to say unique to Cabell, but it's, Cabell's the first place I've read it. I've heard this idea, too. A lot of science fiction, I feel like Star Trek at some point has talked about having, you know, imagine if we were living on two dimensions, what would a three-dimensional object look like? And, you know, that type of thing has been thrown around science fiction recently, but this is from 1916. So this is yeah. maybe the first time we've ever seen this before. I mean, we've, like I said, Abbott does it in 1884 or whenever it was, 1880s, whenever Flatland came out. Sure. But he does it as a, a one-off political fantasy. It's not connected to human life story the way that Cabell is doing it. Now, Sir Thomas believes thinking about these things is the act of an unbalanced mind, but Phil says, hey, things exist beyond our senses and it's not crazy to contemplate them. It might even be an important thing to do. Our limited understanding is a prison in a way, and uh, who can blame him for wanting to escape this prison? But Sir Thomas plainly states that freedom, that freedom, that specific freedom from this prison of our world is forbidden. He thinks that if there is a curtain over these unknowns, that it's there for reason. And he says, I must for my own sanity's sake insist it can never be lifted. So Philip poses, what if it's actually not forbidden? What if it's just a barrier, something that we can actually just cross? So they go into another room and there's a statue of a woman with a bird's beak holding a dagger in one hand and a serpent in the other. Sir Thomas goes, look, I'm gonna need a knife probably, a clean knife for later, and Philip just pulls out this bone-handled knife. He's ready to go, and they have a little chuckle about it. And then something crazy happens. Uh, Sir Thomas calls for, we don't know what happens exactly. Something strange happens. Maybe they do a ritual of some kind, is that? Mm -hmm. they yeah, they do, because the instructions that were left for him, I think, this is a little like the time machine, really. You know, th this guy split and then there's the people waiting in the room for him to show up again from the other world. So this is what that is. He says, you have to do this ritual. I think it's to get him back. The notion is, and I, again, part of the reason that Cabell leaves it oblique is for that sense of frisson and uncertainty that you want. But what happened is Herrick did a ritual. We know that because he cleared out his floor and he drew diagrams and burned yeah. 
uh, incense. He did that ritual to physically go into the land of the fairies. Then they have to do the backwards ritual, one assumes, to bring him back. Right. And the notion is that he will come back and he will report what he's seen. So they're in the middle of doing this ritual. Now, Philip, now give me the knife, cried Sir Thomas Brown. He knew for the first time, despite many previous mischancy happenings, what real terror was. The room was thick with blinding smoke by this, so that Borsdale could see nothing save his co-partner in this adventure. Both men were shaken by what had occurred before. Borsdale incuriously perceived that old Sir Thomas rose, tense as a cat about to pounce, and that he caught the unstained knife from Borsdale's hand and flung it like a javelin into the vapor which encompassed them. This gesture stirred the smoke so that Borsdale could see the knife quiver and fall and note the tiny triangle of unbared plaster it had cut in the painted woman's breast. Within the same instant, he had perceived a naked man who staggered. Is Adukronias Nago? The intruder's thin, shrill wail was that of a frightened child. The man strode forward, choked, seemed to grope his way. His face was not good to look at. Horror gripped and tore at every member of the cadaverous old body as a high wind tugs at a flag. The two witnesses of Herrick's agony did not stir during the instant wherein the frenzied man stooped, moving stiffly like an ill-made toy, and took up the knife. So they brought this guy back in, and uh, so when he threw the knife, it hit that figure of the woman. That's what it hit, right? Mm. He throws the knife through the smoke, disrupting the connection. It's steel. In magic rituals, you use that knife to cut the magical connection, and he throws it at the Queen of the Fairies. So there's a previous discussion that, you know, symbolic acts aren't actually symbolic acts, that they have a meaning. Um, Mm. that there's no reason to have a symbol for something that doesn't exist. That is all background to what happened. And then the intruder, who is, we assume, Herrick, uh, and in fact, we're told he's Herrick. um, Yeah, I uh, hope it's him and not just another random naked old man. (laughs) We got the wrong number. How did that happen? And then Herrick picks up the knife, kills himself with it. He kills himself, yeah, which they recall sort of somewhat later. And Mm -hmm. it's so casual, too. He says it was kinder to let him die. It was curious, though, as he stood there hacking his chest, how each stab he deliberately twisted the knife. (laughs) I suppose the pain distracted his mind from what he was remembering. That's kind of chilling. He's hurting himself even more, so he just doesn't have to think. And then after that's all related, it says, so this adventure came to nothing. I thought it was curious. And then in the end, uh, we don't need to do the quote. They sort of wrap it up by saying, I think this guy basically went to hell. You know, that his face didn't look good when he came back from this. I wish I could forget the old old man's face, uh, says Borsdale. Sir Thomas says, hey, you know, I dreamed of Corinna as well once. You know, I can understand why he made the effort. And that's the end of the story. Pretty insane. It's yeah, it's yeah. a pretty nutty story, and the, the resolution of it is is just, they have a, a horrible, strange incident that really doesn't get any explanation, and they don't want to know, which is kind of you know the more Lovecraftian aspect of it, where they're just like you know what, let it go. It, we don't need to know. 
It's not going to help us in our life. It's not going to help our sanity. It was such an interesting perspective because when I first started reading this, I thought, uh-oh, it's one of these talking in rooms stories, you know? I got mm-hmm. the sense a couple pages <laughs> in, oh, there's not going to be real action. I have a knight and they're just going to show me the knight and then the knight's not going to stab anything. That sucks. <laughs> but... It is really interesting that the curiosity that these guys are on the side of let the veil be so that they're almost like blue collar in a way. They pulled this guy out of the ritual. They're like, oh, his face looks like he saw some terrible stuff that checks out. Oh, he killed himself. <laughs> yup, that's pretty much what we were thinking about this. Well, I'm here to help you out of that thing, but I'm not going into it. That was such a cool perspective because usually we've got people who are being tormented by their curiosity. <laughs> These guys aren't all that curious, really. They yeah. go, yeah, that, that confirms what we already thought. It's bad there in Fairyland. And that's sort of the Boarsdale begins as the sort of, you know, this is a big thing. We should do it. We should explore Fairyland. We should be helping out Herrick. Sir Thomas is like the, you know, I'm getting too old for this shit uh, guy. <laughs> and he says, all right, yeah, I'll let you have your first look. And then you're going to agree with me that we have to pretend it was insanity. And then they have the bit where they open up the window and they look out and it's beautiful, bustling, idyllic, rustic England with babies kissing and, and flowers and whatnot. And Sir Thomas <laughs> says, this is not a bad prison to be locked in. Everything's yeah. fine. Well, yeah. Who would leave this? Uh, Boarsdale overpraises him, and he says, oh, you're the most sensible man of my acquaintance. And <laughs> Sir Thomas says, well, I dreamed of Corinna. Back in my youth, I did some dumb things that I'm not proud of, too. So yeah. we just have to learn from it and move on. Well, Ken, I want to thank you so much for bringing us the story and for being on our show. You're, you add so much. There's so many things I miss. There's a hell of a lot Chad missed. But you managed to catch <laughs> catch it all. Well, I have this new thing I'm doing when Ken comes on the show where I don't read the story at all. I just <laughs> act real curious. Right. I couldn't figure out the beginning at all. Could you tell me what happened? It's sort of my book on tape. <laughs> I trick Ken. Well, thank you, Ken. Appreciate it. Well, whatever it takes, man. I mean, if you have to have me on every time to make Chad read the story, I'll do it. Or Chad, if you want to have me on sometime the story's really long and you don't feel like it. Oh, I'm going to start do. calling you all the time. I'll be like, yeah. you know, because I I need glasses and stuff, so I'm having a hard time reading lots of stuff. I might yeah. just call you and be like, I'm making mac and cheese. Can you tell me what it says on the back of this box? <laughs> I read it, but I just want to yeah. get your take on it. <laughs> calling you to read everything to me. Yes, oh. always great to have you on. I want to once again thank Eric Peabody for being our reader. And folks, if you need any audio stuff, please look him up at Viking Guitar Productions. He does mixing, mastering. If you've got an audio need, check out Viking Guitar Productions. We're going to be talking about scary fairies for the rest of the month, so please stick with us as we do that. Uh, For now, that's all we got. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Kenneth Hype. And you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories on hppodcraft.com. HP Podcast.